If you would keep your Bibles open there to Joshua 16 and 17. Uh, if you've not been with us before, or if it's been a while since you've been with us, let me give you a bit of a recap where we've been. Uh, we're studying through the book of Joshua, chapter by chapter. We've, uh, we've watched the Israelites as they've entered the land. They've crossed the River Jordan, and immediately they've begun a, a conquest of the land where they began to engage the Canaanites in battle. And the Lord has given them victory after victory, um, and to the point that we're in a section of the book now uh, where Joshua is now allotting, he's giving the, the, the tribes of Israel their inheritance that was promised long before, uh, a portion of the land where they would uh, have a land to be God's people and enjoy the blessings of the land as God is, has promised in his word to them. And so this morning we're studying chapter 16 and 17, we're putting those chapters together because it, it, it's, a, it's a section that shows us the allotment to the tribe uh, of, of Joseph's sons, the sons of Joseph. Uh, also known as the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so I'm not going to spend a great deal of time this morning. In, in, in weeks past, sometimes we do. This time we're not going to spend a great deal of time discussing the, the boundaries, the specific boundaries or borders of that property, of that land. Um, I believe, though, there are several truths in this, these two chapters in this text um, that would, that would in, engage our hearts, that would teach us, that would inform our hearts on how we live uh, as believers in God's world, under God's rule. And so, uh, so four points this morning, if you will, as we, as we look at these two chapters. The first being this, we see a reminder of God's sovereign plans. We're given a reminder in the text this morning of God's sovereign plans. Look at verses, uh, really chapter 16, the, the first four verses. Uh, we'll look at those kind of uh, and do some reading and some jumping a little bit. But uh, I think they, they serve for us, though, a, a subtle reminder, and it may not even been immediately obvious to us, a subtle reminder that God is sovereign and he does things in ways that we often would not, that we would not plan them. Or uh, he, he, he does them in, in ways that are above our ways, the scripture says. And, and so that may even be subtle in these verses. You may not have even noticed it if you prepared and, and read ahead uh, doing worship prep for this, for this week, for the, the sermon this Sunday. But as we read chapter 16, listen for and, and listen for the ways that God's plans are not our plans. His ways are above our ways. Uh, let's start in verse 1 and, and we'll read a little bit and skip a little bit. So verse 1, the allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho east of the waters of Jericho. So verse 1 has already tipped us off. We're about to see uh, in these next two chapters the allotment of the sons of Joseph. And so verses 1 through 3, the rest of verse 1 and through verse 3 are really a, a general description of that land, of the borders of that property, uh, that chunk of land. And then verse 4 is key. So if you will keep, keep with me in, verse, in chapter 16, we'll skip down to verse 4. The people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. Now, verse 4 is vital for us. It may not seem that way at first, but it's important because, it, one, it reminds us who's about to receive their portion. It reminds us who's about to receive their allotment. But it also gives us the birth order of Joseph's sons. That's incredibly important for us. It's a key for us. And we don't really get this in our culture. Our culture sort of misses this, but this is huge in their culture. This was a major point of emphasis for the Israelites. Uh, in, our, in our culture, we love our kids equally. We love to show our kids our love for them by giving them things and gifts and in loving them in, in equal measure, right? Well, in the Old Testament, there were specific expectations and, and even obligations for the firstborn son. Uh, the firstborn son had a place of priority. And so verse 4 is important because the writer of Joshua is reminding us of that order of Joseph's sons. And it's a subtle red flag for us. It's sort of like a, a little hint or a clue for us of God's sovereignty. 
But even that might not be immediately obvious to us. So let's continue to read. So again, reminding verse 4, the people of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. Then you get to verse 5, literally the very next verse. The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. You'll see that description in the rest of chapter 16. But then skip to chapter 17 for just a second. We're going to come back, but skip to chapter 17, verse 1. And you see this, 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 major, uh, this major development in chapter 17, verse 1. Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. And there it is, a subtle hint, a subtle red flag, a smoking gun, if you will, of God's sovereignty all over these verses that we may not have even caught with, a, with, a, with just a casual reading of the scriptures. And you may even now be wondering, what in the world is Matt talking about? I still don't see it. Uh, well, friend, I have a question for us maybe that would help us to get to this emphasis in the scriptures. Why is it that the writer, the writer of Joshua reminds us in verse 4 of Joseph's sons and even the birth order, Manasseh and Ephraim in verse 4, but then verse 5, as soon as he says that, he gives us the priority of Ephraim receiving his inheritance, his portion first, and then chapter 17 describes Manasseh, the firstborn, the older, the priority, getting his allotment second. It's because God's ways are not our ways. God is sovereign and his plans are often not our plans. And you may object and just say, well, Matt, that just seems coincidence. Maybe he just, in the writing of Joshua, put Ephraim first, and it's not that big a deal, and you're just making a big deal out of nothing. Well, I don't think that's the case, but I don't want you to just take my word for it. There's some baggage that comes along with Joshua 16 and 17. Uh, a lot of times when we're reading through the Old Testament, and, and specifically Joshua, and, and this land, and these promises, and this conquest, and these allotments, they're all fulfillment of God's promises. They all have baggage in the rest of the Old Testament. And so the baggage that we need to see uh, points us back to Genesis chapter 48. We need to go back in Israel's history a little bit and understand what's going on here with Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So if you will, I don't get you to do this often, but turn with me to Genesis 48. We need to see this this morning because I, th I think it's in seeing this that we see this truth of God's scripture, that it's all over uh, uh, scripture, the biblical theology. If, if we put together the narrative of scripture, we see this, that God's sovereign in his ways, his plans are so much greater and higher than our plans and our ways, even when it's done and, and, and things are, are, are brought about that are not the way we would have done them. Genesis 48, though, is where we see Joseph bringing his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that this text in Joshua uh, is pointing us to. He's bringing them before his aging father, Jacob. Now, it's, it's before his father, Jacob, their grandfather, that they'll receive a, this customary blessing uh, from, their, from their grandfather. And so we'll read a bit here in Genesis 48, uh, but we see the significance of Joshua this morning by looking back at it. So look at verse 1, Genesis 48, verse 1. Note the birth order. Again, it's important here for us, even in Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, and so Jacob's getting old, he's, 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 he's aging, and he's told that his son and grandsons are coming to see him. So he sits up in bed, he reminds his son Joseph of the promises of the covenant of God. Skip down to verse 5 with me. Uh, when Jacob refers, first refers to his grandsons, this is what he says. Um, Jacob's talking again about his grandsons, verse 5. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim... And Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Oh my goodness, he flipped the order. Did you see that? Did you see what granddaddy just did? 
It may be an honest mistake. Maybe, maybe after all, Jacob is getting older. You'll see the text refer to him as Israel also, so don't get confused there. Jacob, Israel, is getting older. Maybe his health's failing. His mind is slipping a little bit. Maybe this is just a subtle mistake, and he gets their names, their birth order, flipped. Well, let's keep reading. Jacob recounts the, the family history in these next few verses to his son and two grandsons. Then in verse 8, he sees the boys, and he asks Joseph, his son, what are these boys? Joseph replies, they're my sons. And so Jacob says to, to his son, bring them to me. Bring my grandsons to me so that I can bless them. And then in verse 10, he reminds us, the, the, the writer of Genesis reminds us again that Jacob's eyes are failing. We're given that little clue, that hint in Genesis 48 verse 10 because that's important for what's about to happen. And then in verse 13, here's what unfolds. Joseph presents his two sons to his aging father, their grandfather, and he puts Manasseh, the firstborn, before Jacob's right hand. Now that's important because you've heard the the phrase, the son of my right hand. This is the place of blessing. That The birthright was to go to the oldest son by being given the the right hand of blessing. And, uh, And so he puts Manasseh before him on his right hand. He puts Ephraim before him on his left hand. And again, so that granddad doesn't mess this order up, right? He's already flipped their names backwards. Joseph is wanting to make certain that he puts them before his, his aging father in a way that he can't get this wrong, right? And so Manasseh's on his right, Ephraim's on his left. And then verse 14, we see the big cliffhanger. Look at verse 14. And Israel, that's Jacob, stretches out his right hand and laid it on the hand, head of Ephraim, who was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And you're reading the text going, no. Granddaddy crosses his hands and places the hand of priority on the younger son. Who does that? Like, like picture this in your mind. Who crosses their hands to carry out this ceremonial blessing? You're like, well, couldn't it just be like a do-over? Couldn't you just, couldn't you just redo this whole thing? And no, that's not the way this thing works. Right? I mean, think about even going back to, to Jacob and Esau, right? Even when deception is used and trickery is used, the blessing that's been handed out is done. It's sealed. And so verse 15 and 16, granddaddy pauses, right? Hands crossed on the wrong sons, at least from Joseph's perspective, granddaddy blesses Joseph. So he's got his hands on the grandsons, but he blesses his son. And the whole time his son, Joseph, is receiving the blessing, he's thinking, how can I undo what granddaddy is about to do here? How can I undo this this problem that I'm about to have on my hands? Uh, The grandson's blessings have not come yet, but he's about to get there. Then look at verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hands to move it away from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this, is, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. So Joseph's trying to get this thing figured out and get the hands in the right order. Why? Because this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way this thing is supposed to go. And granddaddy's about to mess it up. Then verse 19, and here's where it has direct application for Joshua. This is where it has a direct bearing upon our text in Joshua 16 and 17. Uh, look, look, at, look at verse 19. But his father, as Jacob, refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall be a people, and he shall also be a great, and also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, 
will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you, and don't miss this order, God make you Ephraim and Manasseh. And then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Do you see it? Does, it? does it make sense now? You get to Joshua 16 and 17, and you have these allotments that are being handed out, and it happens exactly as God, through Jacob, said it would. Even when it didn't make sense by worldly standards. Even when conventional wisdom in the culture and the times would have been opposite of everything that happened on that day, it came to pass just as the Lord said. Because the Lord is sovereign and His ways are above our ways. The writer of Joshua is well aware of the birth order. He even mentions it. Yet he still puts Ephraim before his older brother. It's a reminder to us, it's a reminder to believers 2,500 years later that God is sovereign and His ways are, are not our ways. And that's one of the reasons the God of the Bible is so stimulating and refreshing. He reverses the conventions of men. He's, he's not prisoner to what fallen men think should be normal. Again and again, he turns human standards on their heads. And in response, we should wonder and awe and rejoice with joy that our God is not bound by what we think of him. The New Testament would say the same thing. Paul in 1 Corinthians First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says this, For consider your calling. He's speaking to the Corinthian church. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring, nothing, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. James chapter 2, verse 5, James says something similar. Listen, my beloved brothers, God, uh, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to, br- to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God is not bound by Robert's rules of orders. He is the one who's in control. He's the sovereign one. And so as a result, we can look at our world and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Yet I worship you. This is not the way that things are supposed to work out, yet I worship you. I mean, think about this. Think about this as you apply this text even to your own life. What in your life, as you're looking around and surveying your life right now, what in your life would you look at and say, this is not the way I planned this, but I see that it could be God flipping things on their heads for his own glory. As you look back at last year and you think about your, your, your 2018 and the things that you went through, the, the things you walked through, and you, you think, I can't even, I couldn't even imagine that this would be the journey that I would have had to walk down last year, but I see God all over it. I see God in the midst of every detail, even though it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been what I would have chosen for myself. I would have actually ran from that if I'd have known that was what was coming my way, but yet I see God all around it. Friends, He's sovereign. And Joshua 16 and 17 provide us a reminder of his sovereign plans, and they're often not our plans. Number two, second point. We see a pleading of God's authoritative word. A pleading of God's authoritative word. See this in chapter 17. Really, the, chap- la- the, the, the second half of chapter 16 is a description of Ephraim's territory. We're not going to unpack that and walk through those descriptions and place names. But if you look at chapter 17, uh, we see... Um, a pleading of God's word. And and really the background for this, the baggage, if you will, uh, for this is Numbers chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27. We're not going to return to Numbers this time, but you can write it down and go back and read it later. It's helpful. 
It's the background for what we see in chapter 17. Uh, to give you that in a, in a quick version, you have a man named Zelophadad, and Zelophadad had no sons. And this presents a problem, right? It's the same problem we just saw just a second ago with Ephraim from Manasseh. Who gets the birthright? Like, who gets the portion? Uh, the firstborn son. So if there is no firstborn son, who does the inheritance go to? Who continues the lineage? Well, Zelophadad had five daughters. He had five daughters, and those daughters go to Moses and appeal to Moses. And they basically say to Moses, give us what would have been our father's inheritance. Don't let it go to the nearest relatives. Don't let it go to our next of kin. Give it to us, his daughters. Give us our father's inheritance, even if this goes against our customs. Even if it goes against what would have been standard call protocol for them. Well, Moses goes before the Lord, goes before God, and determines that this is indeed what God desires for Zelophadad's family, for his daughters, for his legacy, his part of the inheritance. And so this scene in Numbers, we see an incredible picture of faith, right? These daughters, they, these girls, they go and, and they declare their faith in God. We believe that God's going to give us the land. And when he does, we want to see our father's portion. We want to see our father's allotment. Joshua chapter 17 gives us the continuation. It's sort of the sequel to Numbers chapter 27. And Joshua will see the rest of that story played out. So read with me Joshua 17. We'll start in verse 3. Now Zelophadad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters. Malah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan. Because of the daughters of Manasseh, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. So here's the sequel for Zelo. We'll just shorten his name. Zelo's daughters, they show the exact same kind of faith here in, in, in Joshua 17 that they demonstrated back in Numbers. They remind Eleazar and Joshua, hey, God commanded Moses to give this inheritance to us. We deserve a part of this land among our brothers. And again, not biological brothers, but our brothers in the land. And, and like Caleb in chapter 14, right? If you remember back to Caleb and, and his statement before Joshua in chapter 14, there's boldness here. There's a boldness here that these ladies would request what's already been promised from the mouth of God. There's a forthrightness. God has said it. We're going to plead God's word here because we trust his word. We want to remind you of his word because we believe it should come to pass. There's a faith here being demonstrated to these ladies. And so I want to make a couple applications for us here in this text. A couple applications as we think about New Testament church, as we think about believers today under a new covenant, I want to make two points of application. Number one, let these sisters bring us to Jesus. Let these sisters bring us to Jesus. How many of us lack boldness, lack assurance, lack confidence to lay hold of what God has already promised, right? All of us do at some point in our lives lack that, lack that assurance, that confidence. And how many of us, even if we know the word of God, sometimes doubt the willingness of God to meet us in the middle of our anxiety, our fears? We know what God said, but maybe our thing, our dilemma is just a little bit too big. It's sort of like, as Christians, we're sort of like people that enter into a shop or a store, and we, we walk the aisles and we find the items we need. We, we pick the items up off the shelf that we need, and we walk to the register. But when we get to the register... 
there's this little bell because there's no one at the register, and there's this little bell. You know the little bell I'm talking about, the one with the ring for service taped right beside it? How many of us, now be honest, how many of us, we walk to the register, there's nobody there, we see the bell, and we're like a little hesitant to ring the bell, right? You know what I mean? You're a little hesitant to ring the bell, and you think, man, if I ring this bell, they're going to, one, they're going to think I'm being impatient, or they're going to think I'm being demanding, or maybe, or maybe it'll irritate the clerk who's in the middle of something else more important, and, and I don't want to irritate the clerk. And so even if we go ahead and ring the bell, there's a moment of hesitation. Like, I don't know if I want to ring the bell, right? And this is precisely where many of us find ourselves in our relationship with Christ. We're hesitant. We lack confidence to ring the bell. <laughs> like, like, for once, do we ever think that the shopkeeper, the owner of the shop, put that bell there because he actually wants you to ring it? <laughs> like, that's what God's called us into as Christians, This is precisely the point that the writer of Hebrews makes in the New Testament. That if Jesus, the Son of God, is our great and sympathetic high priest, and he's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, then what should we do? The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, Then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find grace and help in time of need. Oh, friend, if you're tempted... Jesus, as the tempted one, the one who uh, went through temptations but yet was without sin, he is God's provision for us in our temptations. Then what should we do? We come to him. We cast ourselves upon him in our hour of temptation. We claim what God has supplied. If God has provided a throne of grace, then let us by all means draw near so that we may find grace and help in our time of need. So that's the first application here, I think. Have confidence, assurance in the words that have come from God. Don't be hesitant. Don't be bashful when it comes to the things that God has promised you. There's another second point of application here. Let these sisters remind us of the freedom our sisters have in Christ. Let our sisters in Christ, uh, let, let these sisters remind us of our sisters in Christ and the freedom that they have in the gospel. So this whole episode with Zelophadad and his daughters came about because in the Old Testament, there's a culture that's very different from ours. This period, this time, Old Testament, there were, there were expectations and roles for women, for daughters, for wives, for sisters that's very much different from our time. So I want to remind you, church family, as we're a New Testament church, I want to remind you all that the gospel has accomplished. I remind you all the gospel is accomplished, and we see it in Galatians. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Sisters in Christ, hear me clearly. If By grace you have been saved through faith. Then everything that was promised in Christ is yours. It is yours. We are one in Christ. The full blessings and freedoms of the gospel are equally yours. And there is no distinction. There is no distinction. You don't have to come and plead like the daughters of Zelos so that you can be the exception to the rule. Right? Christ has pled your case by his shed blood. And sister, you are a full and equal heir of the promise. 
I think our sisters in Christ need to hear this. You are not a second-class citizen of the kingdom of God. You are not less than. Shame on us, the church, your brothers in Christ, husbands, fathers, if we have made you feel like a second-class citizen of the kingdom of God. Listen, Papa Spring, we must be a place where our sisters in Christ are shown the same love, respect, responsibilities, and expectations that the scriptures would show them to have. And as your pastor, you need to hear me say this. You are valid. Your gifts are valid. Your fears and triumphs are valid. You say, Matt, what does that mean for us? It means we uphold biblical complementarianism. You may, whoo, that's a $5 word that I've not heard before. What does that mean? It means this, that man and woman are created equal before God and have complementary roles and expectations that are to be lived out in the church and in the home. Man and woman are equal before God, but with complementary roles and expectations to be lived out within the church and home. You say, well, Matt, are we going to have uh, some women presented as elders? I know we have an election of, of elders coming up this year. No. The New Testament in particular, 2 Timothy chapter 3, makes it clear that that would be unbiblical. But, but we need to have our sisters in Christ utilizing their God-given gifts in areas all over our church and community. And I think for so long that's been diminished in the church. In many ways, we must tear down walls that tradition has built, but that the Bible is silent on. Example for you. Matt, what does that mean? And I'm just, I'm just wrestling with this text, even in my own heart this week, as I'm preparing for this, this morning. And the Lord convicted me in, in a lot of ways. Let me just give you an example, of an example of, of the way I've wrestled with this text this week. Why is it that we only have male ushers for the offering? Like, is there a verse in Scripture where it says, you shall only have male off- offering takers? Like, why is that? Why is that our knee-jerk reaction? Or why is it my... And again, I'm confessing here to you. I'm confessing here. Why is it at the end of every service when I look for someone to pray for the benediction, why do I always call on men? Why is that? Is there scripture that would say that that's got to be the case? Or is it just tradition? Is it my habit? Is it what's easy or convenient? Guys, we, we must think through this issue. In church family, I'm guilty here. I think we need to consider how are we caging in our sisters in Christ? Hear me clearly. I'm going to get off my soapbox in a moment. But where God has spoken and given clear lines for gender roles in his word, we will stand firm. Don't question that. Where the Bible has spoken and given us those gender roles, we will stand firm. But where there is freedom, we must liberate our sisters to serve the Lord with joy and gladness. And and, and shame on us if we have not. All right, I'm done. Chapter 3, or chapter 3, point number 3, point number 3. We see a deviation from God's design. We see a deviation from God's design. Look at chapter 17. Chapter 17, verses 7 through 13. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that these allotments, all of this rejoicing, all of this celebration from taking the land is going to come to a halt. That uh, as we continue through the Old Testament, these allotments, this land does not last Uh, Israel fails because of idolatry, because of sin. They're brutally defeated. They're led back into slavery. You don't have to get to the book of Judges, though, to see that. The first signs, the first hints of that is right here in Joshua. Uh, And you see hints all along the way. We've seen it already. We'll see two more cases of it this morning. So if you peek back into chapter 15, where we studied last week, you remember there's a a case there where we're we're hinted at this this, this, uh, idea that they didn't completely devote to destruction the people that were in the land. Well, this morning, if you include chapter 15, we have three notes within three chapters of Israel's failure in this matter. Look at chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah 
at Jerusalem to this day. There's hint number one. Chapter 16, verse 10. Hint number two. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. And so the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. There's the second hint. Chapter 17, verse 12. Chapter 17, verse 12. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Now, chapter 16 and 17, there's this intensification of their failure, right? Their failure is increasing. In chapter 16, their failure was to, was to dispossess one city, Gezer. Chapter 17, they failed to dispossess a number of cities, a number of important strategic locations. And this is usually the pattern of sin, right? Think about your own life. It usually starts out as a, as a one-time thing. You mess up, you sin, you fall short, you do this thing, and then it, and then it intensifies if it's not dealt with. If, if radical amputation is not used and, and the Lord uh, cut that out of our lives, it turns into a second thing and a second thing and then a habit. And then it's a lifestyle. And laziness on Israel's part is clearly disobedience. You can write down Exodus 23, Deuteronomy chapter 7. These are places where God told uh, the Israelites that the, that the residents of Canaan, and I quote, must not live in your land lest they lead your sons and daughters astray back into idolatry. God was saying to them, the cancer of Baal worship is contagious, and it'll spread like wildfire. You've got to remove it completely. And again, I want to remind us here that God didn't, ex- didn't expect this. He actually uh, never said or expected this to be immediate. In fact, he said the opposite would be the case. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, verse 22. Hear the way that the Lord described this process. It wasn't going to be immediate. He said this, The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end to them all at once, lest wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into a great confusion until they are destroyed. So God says it's going to happen slowly but surely. Be persistent in obedience to drive them out of the land, and I will accomplish it through you. But as early as Joshua 16 and 17, we see that Ephraim and Manasseh have lost sight of that vision. They've lost sight of that. They've compromised. They're no longer being obedient to this slow, methodical possessing and owning of the land. And now they've clearly become powerful enough. The text even tells us that. They've clearly become powerful enough to dispel them from the land, which is what God said would happen in Deuteronomy 7, by the way. But instead of using that power, that God-given power to kick the Canaanites out of the land, they use that power to make the Canaanites slaves in the land. They keep them in the land to use them for their own advantage. They diso- Listen, they disobeyed God because of a business opportunity that seemed better in the moment than the word that God had spoken years before. I'm going to say that again because some of us need to hear that. They, in that moment, made a business decision, a business opportunity, seemed more important or more uh, effective in the moment than the word that God had spoken years ago. How much does that sound like our culture today? That in the moment, this thing, this thing sounds better than what God said 2,000 years ago, some ancient book. Let us be slow, church family, to pick up the first stone. Let us be slow to pick up the first stone. How many, how many of us quickly pick on these Israelites, right? These boneheads that to, like, totally and royally mess up the clear instructions of God. Like, how do they miss this? God gave it to them in a miraculous way. How do they miss this? But how often do we fail in the same way? Faithful obedience. How, do, how often do we consider faithful obedience as something that's annoying instead of satisfying? Like, well, I'm going to do it because i got to do it. It's, just, it's like an obligation to be faithful to the Lord and not something that brings us joy and satisfaction. 
No wonder Jesus tells us in Mark 4, right, that the ones who at first seem most ecstatic about him could be the quickest to fall away. Davis, in his commentary on this section, it says this, The Christian's faith is not so much proved by his courage in a sudden crisis as by his faithfulness in daily plotting. Ephraim and Manasseh's failures brought no immediate dire consequences. We must wait for the book of Judges for that. Here, though, it is mere obedience, if there is such a thing. Mere obedience. Number four, our fourth point, fourth takeaway from these two chapters. You see a discontentment in God's gifts. A discontentment in God's gifts. Look at chapter 17. You've heard it read for you already as Victor's read our text. Chapter 17, verses 14 through 18, the end of this chapter. As we read, don't get lost in the obscure details. Listen for the claims of Ephraim and Manasseh. Listen to what they come to Joshua with, their, their concern, their complaint, and then how Joshua counters and answers them. And listen for the heart of the issue. As we read here, listen for what they're really getting at. Look at verse 14. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I'm a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you're a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of the Ephraim is too small for you. And the people, said, the, the people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshean and the villages, and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You, have, you shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Though all, through all of these details, the point in this final section is clear. The Joseph tribes, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, they complain that they've only been given one small portion. And on, and on top of that, there are numerous people. And so Joshua points their attention to the forest. Verse 15, he goes, hey, look at, that, look at that forest over there. Go be lumberjacks. Go log the forest and give yourself a larger area. Cultivate that thing that's not cultivated in your allotment. Go and clear that land and use it. And then they respond to Joshua. And it's in their response that you really see the heart of the issue. It's in their response that you really see what's going on in this whole thing anyways. Verse 16, the hill country is not enough for us. For, it's maybe yet in your translation, for the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron. There it is. They're not afraid of the trees. They're afraid of the people on the other side of those trees. They're not afraid of logging or or cultivating the territory. They're afraid of the Canaanites that they'll have to face if they log that territory. That's the heart of the whole issue. Don't, Don't miss this, friend. Their discontentment in God's gift came as a result of their distrust in God's word and power. I'll say that again because I think we need to hear that. The discontentment in God's gift came as a result of their distrust in God's power and word. How often are we there, church family? We don't want this land, we want another land, but it's ultimately because we don't believe that God can, can drive out those Canaanites, which is already what he said he would do. He's already promised us, that's, that's precisely what he said. Listen to Deuteronomy 7. I mentioned that text a few times to you this morning. Listen to what God said in Deuteronomy 7. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that you saw with your eyes, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord God do to all peoples to whom you are afraid. Moreover, 
The Lord your God will send hornets among them until all those who are left hide themselves from you and are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may make an end of them all at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. Then Deuteronomy chapter 20, again, speaking specifically to this issue that they're complaining about. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Friends, this should have been their comfort. God had spoken his word to comfort them. It should have been their confidence as they, as they feared, as they, as they saw what lay before them. They, they should have saw this scripture and been, been, been in their hearts uh, brought to a place of confidence in what God could do. But instead they spit upon the gift of God. They looked at it and, 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 and thought it was something to not be treasured, something not to be had because of the fear that they had in their hearts. Ephraim and Manasseh had to remember who God is. He's the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. He's, he's the one who had bludgeoned Pharaoh to his knees. He's the one that had led them by a pillar of fire. He's the one that had broken down unbreakable walls. He was the one that rained down ice missiles on the escaping army. And once you see that God, parasite swords and Canaanite chariots, they're nothing to fear. Once you see the God who's, who's supported you and, and led you and kept you alive and preserved you all this time, it was not something to be afraid of. But, but their fear led them to look at God's gift and, and, I don't want God's gift. It's not good enough. It's not big enough. I need something else. This is not just a problem from Ephraim and Manasseh. This is a problem for every Christian of every generation. We need to be reminded that God is not prisoner to human odds. We need to be reminded that, that his promises are, are more real than the iron plating on those Canaanite chariots. His promises, his word to us will not fail. And we don't spit upon God's gift because we doubt God's word. You say, well, Matt, what is God's gift? I don't have a piece of land like that that I'm facing today. What would I be looking at and spitting upon? Oh, friend, the greatest gift of all is God's son. Salvation that we have in Christ, that Jesus came to this earth and he lived a perfect life, the life we could not live. And yet, even though he lived a perfect life, he, he died a criminal's death upon a cross to bear the penalty for sin that each and every one of us were, were owed. And he says in his word to us that, it, that if we confess him as Lord, if we trust that his death upon Calvary was for our salvation and we repent and turn from our sins, that he'll save us. He'll make us a son or daughter. Friend, don't miss out on the most precious gift in all of the world because you don't believe the truthfulness of God's word. Trust him today. Come to him today. Confess to him today. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that even in the book of Joshua, we're surrounded by big names and cities and hard to pronounce places and peoples. That God, your word is profitable for us. That there's life. There's word for correction and reproof and training in righteousness in your word, in the book of Joshua. And so this morning, as we think through the implications of this text, God, I pray that you would convict us. That God, you'd change our hearts. That God, you'd form us to look like Christ. God, help us to stand on your word and your promises, every jot and tittle. God, everything that you've declared in your word will come to pass. Help us to trust that with our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to think through ways that we've, we've walked through things in this last year, maybe even things that will be coming up in this year, and they're not the way that things were supposed to be. They're not the way that we would have planned it. Help us to trust your sovereignty there. God, I pray that you'd help us to think through these 
the issues that this text raises for us, that you'd give us confidence in Christ. You'd help us to not be bashful about the promises of God. The things that you've said are ours in Christ. God, I pray that you would, any person here this morning that's never trusted you for salvation, God, I pray today that the Holy Spirit would convict in such a way that today they would be brought to a place where they trust you, trust your death on the cross, Jesus, for salvation. We give you this time and pray that you would move in our hearts, draw us to yourself. It's in Christ's name I pray.